0: second. There we go. Okay, it is Parshas bow. There is a lot to say on this Parsha. I'm going to jump right in from the... we're going to jump around a little bit. So one of the intriguing parts of the Parsha is the fact that the Jews are told to borrow... Things from the Egyptians. We're actually gonna to spend tonight's class at 8 o'clock discussing that in much more detail, discussing the ethics of doing so and the significance of this borrowing from the Egyptians. But it's worth just pointing out right now for those who won't be able to join us later, that Ravsadya Goen points out that the word sha'al, which most commentators translate as borrow, could also mean to ask someone for a gift. Um, I could ask you for something. That The word for a question is she'ila. So Rav gohan says, there's nothing unethical over here. We never stole from the Egyptians. We never borrowed it, uh, you know, knowing that we were going to leave and never come back. That would be unethical, he acknowledges. And therefore he says, we never borrowed. Rather, we asked them for gifts and they gladly gave us these gifts. Most commentators disagree and they have to then address the ethics behind borrowing something when you know what's going to happen, that you're not going back to Egypt and you will never be repaying these gifts. Again, we'll speak about that a little bit more tonight. Uh, it's worth pointing out that there was an, uh, an op-ed that was published in Egypt uh, 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 six years ago. Um, an Egyptian was writing that he wanted to demand from the Jews for them to pay back uh, all the stolen goods, right? They borrowed all this, all these funds, and they never paid them back. Um, and so this was the op-ed that 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 was found. Uh, the truth is, the Gemara relates that uh, whether it took place or didn't, but the Gemara speaks about Alexander the Great opening some uh, international tribunal where people could come and uh, make claims. And the Gemara relates, the Egyptians made this exact claim, you know, 2,500 years ago or so. And they said the Jews owe us all this money. And so the Jews came back, and to defend themselves, they said, well, it's true, we do owe you that money. But let's make do a calculation. If we're going to take the biblical narrative uh, at face value, let's see, we were your slaves for hundreds of years. And they did the math, and it turns out that you, the Egyptians, actually owe us much more than we owe you. And the Gemara says that the, the Egyptian delegation ran away from the court. Okay, Uh, again, we'll be discussing this a little bit more tonight. Uh, A mitzvah that shows up in this week's parsha is that of establishing the new month and the new moon. We establish our month um, at the site of a new moon. And, uh, And the Torah actually tells us that our first, the beginning of our year is actually Nisan. Uh, the beginning of the year, Rosh Hashanah really should be Nissan, the first of Nissan, and so it's an interesting thing. We have really have a number of Rosh Hashanahs. We have two new years. One is in Tishrei, that's the Rosh Hashanah that we know about. The other one is in Nissan, and this idea that Rav Hirsch speaks about this it reflects the fact that we have almost two identities as Jews. On the one hand, we have our Jewish identity, and that revolves our, around our birth as a nation, which took place in Nisan. And then we have our more international, universal identity, and that reflects that is reflected in Tishrei, when the world was born. And as Jews, we constantly, you know, sometimes we get a little bit too stuck in either extreme. Uh, depends, you know, on, on who you are. Some people sometimes get too stuck on the universal idea, and they lose sight of the fact that we have a unique mission as Jews, and so we have, we need Rosh Chodesh Nisan to remind ourselves that we have our own identity, we have our own mission, we have our own Torah, etc. And some sometimes get too focused on the Nisan idea. They get too focused on the fact that we have our Torah, we have our way, we have our people, we have our, our community, and they lose sight of the rest of the world. And so we have both. We have Rosh Chodesh Nisan, we have Rosh Chodesh Tishrei, and as Jews, we balance these two ideas. Okay. Uh, the, the tr- I'm, I'm sorry? Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. that's okay. That's okay. Okay. Um, okay. Going a little further, we have the Karban pesach, which is given. Uh, you know, a mitzvah given to the Jewish people. We unfortunately don't have the ability to bring it nowadays. What is the symbolism behind the Karban pesach? Um, so I'll come back to one of the most famous symbolisms. But there's an interesting debate as to whether the Karban pesach represents freedom or represents slavery. So the Sefer HaChinuch, one of the earliest commentators who described the symbolism behind mitzvah, suggests that it reflects kingly eating. Uh, the idea of roasting something, one of the mitzvahs says that it has to be roasted. The idea of something, when, you, when, when you don't have a lot of wealth, you don't roast things. Why? Because all the juices that come out could be eaten, right? People, you'd, you'd speak to people uh, back in the old country, you know, and everything would be cooked and you'd have like little meat sauce and you'd have maybe a tiny little piece of meat because you, 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 you savor every piece of, every drop because it's all you had. So the fact fact that we have to roast it represents absolute freedom. We don't care about the extra juice. We are now free. Though Chaim actually says that marar and Matzah that are eaten together with the carbon Pesach, even maror, which we normally see as something bad, um, in true, or something uh, bitter and something which reflects servitude, he says that's not true, really, mar. Um, You know, uh, just like you have a little bit of harif. I don't know about, you know, if you're a shawarma eater, had shawarma last night, you know, we put a little harif inside, um, and that actually enhances the flavor. It's not meant to demonstrate our slavery. The entire experience is meant to reflect our freedom. Rev Hirsch suggests on the opposite side that the Korban Pesach represents our servitude and not to go into all the details, but uh, the idea of the roasting, um, you know, the way we f- the, the physically, the way you roast something is you suspend it in the air and it's meant to reflect the Jewish people's uh, experience in Egypt, that they were suspended, they had no support, they felt completely lost. And that is re- represented in the act of roasting that the animal representing the Jewish people was suspended without any sense of comfort, any sense of stability. Okay, going a little further, uh, one of the mitzvos of er- the Korban Pesach, a very famous one, is we had to put blood on our doorposts and we teach this to our children so that God will see the blood and it will jump over the house. And obviously, we all you know, ask the question, God doesn't need a sign. And so everyone understands that the sign in some ways is for us. Um, The question is, what exactly is it meant to demonstrate? Um, You know, the the Akeda Sefer Akeda suggests that the blood wasn't even on the outside of the doorpost, it was actually on the inside. Um, It was just to remind the Jewish people of their dedication. Most commentators understand that the blood was on the outside, and the greatest demonstration of their willingness to serve God and abstain from idolatry, and as we all know, the Lamb was a deity, In Egypt um, it was to do so publicly and this was by putting it outside it wasn't a sign to tell God who's inside but rather it was a protest of sorts this was a early protest of the Jewish people they're putting blood on the outside of their homes to say we don't buy into this form of this way of life to this uh, pagan worship we don't believe in your beliefs and it was their almost uh, passive, um, you know, uh, protest over here. They didn't go- leave their houses, which we'll talk about in a moment. But it was a way of symbolically stating that we are protesting against the way of life of the Egyptians. Now, one of the other mitzvot of that night is that you had to stay indoors on the night of Pesach. Why? Rashi says the reason they stayed indoors was because of some demonic uh, forces that would be out while the Egyptian firstborn were, um, were being killed. Now, Rashi sources this in a Pasuk, uh, Bar-Chinashi. It's part of the that, uh, part of the chapter of Tehillim that we say on Rosh Chodesh. And there, it speaks about these demonic forces coming out every night. The Ramban says this can't be the explanation because then you should never be able to go outside at night uh, because it shouldn't be unique to the night of Pesach. And the Barbanel suggests that the, the mashchis uh, that the Torah speaks about, the destructive force, is not a spiritual or demonic force. Rather, it's the, there's a concern the Egyptians will be so upset that night over the death of their firstborn, that they m- might riot, they might attack the Jewish people, and therefore, for safety purposes against the possible, um, you know, insurrection of the of the of the Egyptians, it would therefore be important to stay inside simply for safety. Okay. Um, Two more points. One is the mitzvah, the end of the parsha is that of tefillin. Um, and what does tefillin remind us of? So the Rambad has one of his most important pieces on Tanakh where he describes the purpose of Yitzhia's Mitzrayim. You know, in the, in the boxes of our tefillin, we have a reminder of the exodus of Yitzhia's Mitzrayim. What were the lessons of Mitzrayim? And he suggests there are three fundamental lessons. And these are the three fundamental lessons of Judaism. If you wanted to distill Judaism into three fundamental truths, this is what they are. One is that God exists. Through the miracles, God reminded the world that he was here. Two is the fact that there is divine providence um, because the plagues would... Im- oh boy. Am I still there? Okay. My screen just shut off. I'm still here. Okay. Uh, two is that, uh, is that um, there's divine providence. We, the plagues Im- afflicted the Egyptians and they did not, or at least many of them, did not afflict the Jewish people. So that is the second lesson. And the third is the fact that God communicates with mankind. This is represented, right? We know that God communicated to Moshe and told him when the plagues are going to come. Why is it so fundamental? It's fundamental because that is the foundation for us knowing about the Torah. Uh, Without that, we would not know of the Torah. It looks like I signed off. I'm going to continue speaking. Uh, I guess we'll stop here.